Welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Jack Jackman, Research Associate at BICOM. I'm delighted to be joined today for a discussion on the recent China-brokered normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran by Sir John Jenkins. Sir John was British ambassador to Saudi Arabia from June 2012 to January 2015. He previously served as the ambassador to Libya, Iraq and Syria and as the British Consul General in Jerusalem. Sir John, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Perhaps you can start by explaining or by reminding our, our listeners what happened with the Saudis and Iranians uh, last week. Um, they, uh, they signed uh, an agreement uh, in Beijing, which the Chinese uh, mediated, uh, which essentially <coughs> was an agreement to restore diplomatic relations, which had been broken in 2016, when the Saudis had executed uh, Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, who was <coughs> a Shia cleric in the eastern province, who was involved in uh, the often violent protests in Awamiya, which is a, a, a small town just to the north of, uh, of Dharan, um, uh, against uh, alleged discrimination against Shia. Uh, and some of these uh, some of these demonstrations took a, an anti-regime turn. Uh, the Saudis, of course, had had experience of this in the in the in the 80s in, in the eastern province uh, and just across the border in Bahrain when the Iranian regime had sponsored uh, uh, revolution groups uh, Shia groups inside uh, inside the uh, the peninsula designed to overthrow the existing dispensations so the, you know the, the people have long memories um, so this was essentially a return to the status quo anti 2016 um, there also seemed to have been agreements though exactly what form these agreements take I don't know. Uh, for the uh, for the uh, Iranians to uh, either dial down or end uh, their arms shipments to the Houthis in Yemen. At the same time, the Iranians officially denied they'd ever done it, in spite of the fact that uh, that Western um, uh, naval patrols had intercepted um, uh, significant numbers of weapons coming from Iran to the Houthis. Um, and uh, there may well have been some sort of agreement on Iran National, which is the uh, the TV station uh, staffed by Iranian expatriates, first in London, and now they've moved to the United States, uh, which the Houthis said was backed by the Saudis and designed to create social terminals. So there's a range of different things. I mean, I mean none of them, I think, uh, in themselves of, uh, of earth-shattering significance. <clears throat> but I think what excited people was that this was the first time that the Saudis and the Iranians had sat down together as the culmination of a, of a rather opaque process, which had been going on for the last two or three years, um, and come to some sort of agreement to stabilize at least parts of their relationship uh, without the presence of the United States. And it, it was, I mean, that, that absence of the United States and all this has excited an awful lot of comment. Thank you, Sir John. I mean, some of that recent recent history um, is very significant. But what's some of the sort of what's some of the older history of this relationship, which which perhaps speaks to the significance of this as well? Well, the South, I mean, you know, Iran. First of all, Iran is uh, and has been for decades uh, the most populous uh, country in uh, in the wider Middle East. I mean, it has something like eighty five million inhabitants now, um, uh, which dwarfs. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi has about 20, 22 million Saudis and maybe another 8, 9, 10 million expatriates. 
um, and dwarfs the total number of citizens of all the, all the GCC countries. So, and physically, of course, in terms of size, it is huge. Um, Iran, uh, as the Iranians never tired, reminding everybody is a very ancient civilization um, and has a complicated and sophisticated uh, history. Uh, Iranians tend to look down on Gulf Arabs as people who don't have that sort of historical background and historical um, uh, uh, record of historical achievement. Um, in uh, From the 1950s onwards, as the British uh, sought to withdraw from the Gulf, uh, the Americans uh, stepped in, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes not. Uh, and one of the one of their uh, aims was to find a regional partner uh, who could help uh, the Americans maintain security in the Gulf, particularly security for energy supplies. Uh, and from the sixties onwards, uh, they, they 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 thought they had found his partner in the Shah of Iran. Um, uh, this. Uh, led to um, some prickliness with Iran's neighbours, uh, including the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia, um, who were uh, competitors in energy markets with the Shah. Um, but that relationship was manageable. Then you had the 79 revolution uh, in Iran with the revolutionary Islamist regime coming to power, led by the late Ayatollah Khomeini, um, which uh, quite specifically set out to export the Islamic revolution, not just to its neighbours, but globally, and sponsored uh, as I said earlier, revolutionary groups uh, with titles like uh, Hezbollah al-Hajjaz um, uh, to, uh, to subvert and, if possible, overthrow uh, uh, the existing regimes in the Sunni states of the, of the Gulf. Um, you had the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, where the Gulf Arabs lined up sometimes covertly, sometimes not so covertly, with Saddam Hussein's Iraq against Iran. Uh, because they feared Iranian revolutionary ambitions and expansionist uh, aims. Um, uh, and then you had a period actually of relative detente in the, in the late 80s, uh, 90s, um, with the death of uh, Khomeini and the, uh, the advent into government of a more pragmatic um, class of Iranian politicians, particularly uh, um, uh, President Rastanjani. Um, who the late King Abdullah always described, in, in my presence and to others, as, as, a, as a friend. Rastin John, of course, died in a rather mysterious circumstance about 20 years ago, uh, but he was succeeded by, uh, 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 by uh, Ayatollah Khatami as president, who again I mean, looked like somebody with whom you could do business, uh, but failed utterly to reform the system and is now effectively under house arrest. So that period of relative detente was followed then um, under uh, Ahmadinejad, President Ahmadinejad, with a, with a period of, of increasing tension. And then, of course, you had the whole nuclear file. The, the, the discovery of the, or the revelation in the early 2000s that the Iranians had been pursuing a program of nuclear development, which everybody uh, assumed, and I think quite rightly, uh, was designed to lead not to civil nuclear um, uh, capacity, but to the possession of a, the development of possession of a nuclear, a nuclear uh, weapon uh, of some sort. And that, that's been a sort of consistent pulse. Then you had the, 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 the signing of the, of the, of the, um, of the JCPOA, um, the temporary agreement, or the, the, the agreement, which is in, in 2015, which is designed um, to set limits to the Iranian nuclear program in return for sanctions relief um, that collapsed when, when President Trump withdrew from it. And there's been sort of sporadic attempts since then to revive it. But the Iranians were, 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 were uh, the Saudis were, um, were seriously upset by the way in which they thought they had been ignored by the Americans in particular, but also the Europeans 
uh, in the pursuit of these negotiations with Iran, because they quite reasonably said that we have interests in the region as well. And that was exacerbated by what happened in Iraq after 2003, the invasion of the Saddam regime, uh, which led to the uh, uh, effectively to the, uh, to the to the to the surreptitious takeover of large parts of the Iraqi state by uh, Iranian-backed militias and politicians, which is the situation we see today, and, uh, and that I think uh, again just fueled Arab and particularly Saudi anger about the way in which they had been taken for granted, and their own interests ignored. It was always assumed, I think, in Washington that, that this would be. Uh, this could be managed and, and the Saudis would remain uh, under uh, a US, uh, as it were, tutelage or protection. Uh, I think the question with this deal is, 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 has a, is, has that period ended? Thank you, Sir John. That's very valuable context. Let's, let's move to some of the wider geopolitics that you've already, mm. you already touched on. To what extent do you think this deal speaks to ever-growing Chinese influence? We know the Saudis have have struggled to make the advances they've wanted with a, a reluctant Biden White House. Yeah. Should, should we see this in, in sort of multipolar terms or should we resist that approach? Um, it's, 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 it's the most, it's, it's the most successful um, uh, Chinese troll of the Biden administration uh, to date, I think. Um, I mean, the, the, the optics of it uh, look like a, look like a, a serious snub uh, to Washington. I actually think it's more complicated than that. I think the, the, I mean, the Chinese came in at the end of this process. This process was already happened. The, I mean, the, the, the talks um, uh, between the Iranians and the Saudis had been happening for the last two or three years. Um, it was, it seems to have been the Iraqis who, um, who facilitated this in the beginning, but they were helped then by the Omanis, who of course had provided the venue for the original covert contacts between the United States and Iraq in whenever it was, well, 2007, I think it was, 2007, 2008, um, uh, with, with Bill Burns and, and Jake Sullivan, which led to the, to the, to the, uh, to the JCPOA, Joint Cooperation and Partnership Agreement, which ended the, or seems to have ended the, seemed at the time to have ended the nuclear issue. Um, so, and then the Chinese came in on the back of that. By providing a venue, of course, you know, it makes it look as if now China is the place you need to go to do these deals. Um, I think, to a certain extent, this is opportunistic. It's not at all clear what the Chinese have undertaken to give in terms of guarantees, if any guarantees at all, that any of this will work. And that's an interesting question. Um, though I think for the Saudis, uh, getting the Chinese hand, as it were, in the mangle of Gulf security and maybe wider Middle Eastern security is probably uh, a plus. Um, because they have a, they have someone now, Beijing, they can go to if the, if the, if the so for example, if the Iranians do not uh, stop arm, arming the Houthis, or or do or continue to make trouble for the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs in uh, elsewhere in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and so forth, um, the Saudis do have someone to appeal to. It, it, it's an interesting question of what the Chinese response would be then, and that would be the test, I think, of whether this is this is a true reflection of a multipolar world or whether it's just smoke and mirrors. Thank you, Sir John. Let's let's stay with the with the Americans for the moment. What's your assessment of what the attitude in Washington will be? I mean, publicly at least, the administration has been cautiously welcoming. Um, yeah. And relatedly, and this is something you, you touched on in your first answer. What do you say to those who see in this a symptom of declining American influence, of of regional drawdown? Uh, you know, I think if I was sitting, if I was in, in 
in the uh, in the White House, in the NSC, or in state, I'd be I'd be cross. I think I'd be missed. I think that this had been done simply presentationally because it looks like a it looks like a bit of a uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a cuss on the Biden administration. We I mean we know that the relationship between uh, the Saudis and Washington, and particularly between um, uh, Prince, uh, um, uh, Crown Prince and Prime Minister Prince Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Joe Biden is uh, uneasy. Um, I mean, this goes back quite a way, it goes back at least as far as uh, the uh, assassination of Jamal al-Khashoggi in, 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 in Istanbul, um, which Washington pinned essentially on, on the Crown Prince. And then Biden talks about you know, Saudi Arabia being a pariah state, which is, which is always, which is inflammatory language. Um, and I think the, 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 Saudi, the, the Americans have struggled to rebuild the relationship. I mean, there was, there was the issue last year over, over energy markets uh, and the pricing of, uh, of oil, um, so the supply of oil to energy markets, where, again, the Americans took offence. In a situation where the Saudis may well have been correct in saying that their aim was simply to achieve a satisfactory balance of demand and supply. So the relationship has been very prickly, and I don't think that, is, that has been, been fixed. The Americans, of course, don't have a relationship with Iran, so, and the Chinese have a relationship with both countries, and don't make the sort of comments that the, Iranian, that the, uh, that the Americans do about, about Mohammed bin Salman. So you know, some of this is about is signaling, I think, uh, by the Saudis, uh, that if you want, that you can't afford to ignore Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you're talking not just about the Middle East, but about energy markets, and indeed about the wider global balance. And I think one of, the, one of the, you know, involving China in this tells everybody this isn't just about the Middle East, it's about China um, uh, 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 and the wider world, that you can't ignore Saudi Arabia, that you have to find a way to deal with Saudi Arabia because it's too important a player. And I think the other interesting thing about this, because I think this deal, the real interest of this deal, is not about China, it's about Saudi Arabia, is, is that this is new. This is new, uh, a new sort of, approach to, to, to foreign policy by the Saudis. It's more activist. Uh, it's more pragmatic. It seems to be more strategic in the way they thought, not just about the relationship with Iran, but about the wider uh, state of security and relationships in the Gulf uh, and the wider Middle East. Um, it's, it's unclear now how that will play out, though you know, I, have my, I have my views about that. But it's... Um, but it, if 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 you're if you're if the Americans are taking a very cool look at it, they might say once they've got over the the shock of being insulted um, that actually it's not a bad idea to have something like this happen. Um, and if you know if you're Biden or or, um, or Lloyd Austin and you want to focus on China, Taiwan, uh, uh, Japan, Korea, India, and so forth, um, having something having a degree of detente in the Middle East, even if it doesn't actually resolve the underlying issues, is actually quite a good short to medium term measure. Thank you, Sir John. Um, and what's your assessment on how you think this news will have been received in Jerusalem? Um, <laughs> and perhaps in particular on, on, on what it might signal for the chances of, of the closer Israel-Saudi relationship that we know Prime Minister Netanyahu has placed such a high priority on? You know, the Saudis were really cross when Netanyahu uh, revealed the fact that, that he and Eli Cohen had, had, had flown to um, uh, to Neon uh, whenever it was, two years ago. And I, you know, it, 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 there have been connections between the Saudis and, and the Israelis 
our intelligence and security matters for decades. The Saudis want to keep that, uh, want to keep all that quiet uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, the Israelis actually for many years kept it quiet. I think Netanyahu has tried to uh, has tried to instrumentalize these relations in a drive a genuinely to persuade the Saudis uh, to normalize in some way uh, with uh, with Israel, and b of course because of his domestic audience. I mean he is you know, he's always presented himself as the guy who gets things done, as the guy who got the Abraham Accords. Uh, done as Mr. Security, as a guy who will guarantee Israel's status in the region and so forth. And, you know, the big prize has always been Saudi Arabia. If you want real normalization um, uh, with the Arabs, you need the Saudis on board because of their, of their demographic weight, of their political weight, and of the religious significance of doing a deal with the custodian of the two holy, the two holy mosques. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I think Netanyahu has massively over, over, overplayed uh, the, the the chances of doing a deal with the Saudis. I mean, I mean, I say that actually, having not thought that the Abraham Accords would happen. So you know, I, I'm I'm I've, I've I've not got the best track record of matters. But I think it is different. I think the significant. I mean, the Saudis are quite aware of the significance of what they've got to offer, and what they've got to offer is is is, is outweighs that which the Emirates or Bahrain or Morocco um, uh, can offer. I mean, it, it's it's of the sort of order. Of doing of doing the deal with Sadat uh, in the nineteen the late nineteen seventies uh, of, of Camp David first Camp David, um, it's that sort of sort of game changer. Um, do the Saudis need it? Not, um, especially Iran, and, and they think that they're no longer at risk of rocket attacks from the Houthis or from Iraqi militias, Shia militias uh, under Iranian control. Um, Netanyahu would love it. Netanyahu, of course, has got massive domestic at the moment um, and he would like to distract attention from all of that although it's quite difficult when, when he's finding it difficult if not impossible get, to get to, to get to Bengalian airport um, so it, it's, it, it's complicated the the, uh, the 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 position for the Israelis massively complicated it also of course has implication any action is contemplate against Iranian nuclear um, assets or sites, um, and that's so th th that that calculation has become more complicated, partly because of airspace issues, partly because you wouldn't you would then if you if the if the, if the Israelis carried out an attack, you would then have to expect a more hostile reaction, I guess, from the Gulf states, even those who have signed the Abraham Accords. Thank you, Sir John. I mean, let, let's stay with that for a moment. With, with reports of, of Iran's uranium enrichment reaching close to 90%, yes. and slim chances of any return to a JCPOA-type agreement, what's next? It depends what the, what the Iranians do with this. I mean, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm not Iranian. Um, uh, if I were sitting in Tehran, I might think, well, you know, I, I've got... Uh, I've demonstrated that I can, I can enrich pretty quickly to to um, to around eighty four percent, which means the next step um, uh, to to enrichment above ninety is 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 very straightforward. We know that the Iranians were doing work on uh, the weaponization of uh, of enriched uranium. I mean, twenty years ago they were doing it, um, so they will have. Um, some skills in, in producing uh, the shaped warheads 
Um, and my guess is that they could probably acquire the necessary skills pretty quickly. The question is, do they want to go for um, uh, to develop uh, and develop with to develop a weapon that also needs to test it, so it would be it would be verifiable. You 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 couldn't you couldn't hide it um, uh, unless they decided to go and test something in North Korea. But even then, I think we'd, we'd, we'd know. Or do they just want to go to threshold status? I think there has been quite a significant school of thought over the last 20 years that what the Iranians really want is to have the capacity to do it, um, but not actually to, to do it, but to get to threshold status. So if they needed to, to weaponize, they could do it pretty quickly. Um, even, if, even if they weaponize, they need a stock of weapons. So they can produce something probably um, uh, damn dirty, um, it would take them a while to, to produce a stock of nuclear weapons. Um, but it all depends on, 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 on what, on their calculations of what, ex- what it is that they need to provide an effective deterrence against, against attack. Uh, and they may think that this deal with the Saudis gives them, gives them a part of an edge um, over, over their enemies because nobody will want to disrupt an emerging detente, however fragile it might be, in the Gulf. Um, and I think, you know, if you, the, the, the Netanyahu government, I, I imagine, will have been calculating that if they can get the Gulf Arabs on their side, then it makes it easier for them to strike if they need to strike. I think this has made it more difficult for them. And the calculation in Washington I, will be Again, I imagine that they don't want any problems in 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 the Middle East because Biden and Sullivan and Blinken and and and, and Austin and the rest want to focus uh, want to focus on China rather than on Middle Eastern issues. So my guess is that if you're in Washington, uh, once you cool down a bit, they will want to take this and keep a lid on everything uh, in the Middle East. So you end up with, with a sort of with a with a with a with a, with a new dispensation where the Iranians have got closer to uh, uh, to full uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability, um, but but haven't taken the last step, and that in itself, even if it is in the long run not sustainable, in the short to medium term, is actually um, is actually desirable and more desirable than causing more conflict. So it's a set of different calculations. Thank you, Sir John. Let's stay with Iran and and specifically on two two related questions concerning Iranian proxies. Mm. Iran appears to have committed to to stopping sending weapons to the Houthis in Yemen. Firstly, does this mean that more will go to other regional proxies? And then secondly, what's your assessment of of the current efforts being made by Iran to influence Palestinian groups in the West Bank? On this issue, I mean, it, it, it may well be that they that they uh, that they stop supplying weapons to the Houthis. Um, uh, and of course, the, 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 the big the big plus for the Saudis, the immediate plus for the Saudis in this deal, uh, if it sticks, is that the Houthis will no longer uh, uh, send uh, send rockets or missiles. Uh, into Saudi, attacking air bases or, or, or the suburbs of Riyadh, uh, and um, or, or indeed the Houthis will 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 not now send uh, try and attack Abu Dhabi or or Dubai. Um, the Houthis, of course, don't need missiles to conduct a civil war, uh, and they're pretty well tooled up as it is. And you know, if they want to, they can buy stuff on the international black market. So it, it's not going to stop the conflict in Yemen, but what it will stop if it sticks 
is the tax by the Houthis on Saudi. Um, so the, so it's, it's not clear to me that the Iranians need to supply the Houthis with significant quantities of weapons uh, in the immediate future uh, to be able to maintain their influence with the Houthis and to enable the Houthis to do what they want to do, to basically to take over the government of Yemen in its entirety, get the money flowing, uh, and, uh, and, and, and create the economic base for sustained Houthi um, hegemony in Yemen, which, which, is, which is a longer-term problem, but, but it's, a, it's a Yemeni problem rather than a regional problem. Um, in terms of supplying uh, kits to others, I mean, they've already, I mean, we know that they have been supplying um, missile technology, uh, including advanced guidance, guidance systems, uh, to Hezbollah for decades. Um, uh, they've also been uh, getting, trying to get stuff into, into Gaza, to Hamas, uh, and to the Iraqi uh, Shia militias of the al Shabi, which are aligned with Iran. Not all, not all the militias are aligned with Iran, but the ones that are people like Kateb, Hezbollah, uh, Harakat al-Mujabir, Assad al al-Haq, have weapons capability. And what the Iranians have been doing, quite impressively, is developing better guidance systems. So it's not just a question, you remember in, in the 2000, the 2006 Lebanon war, where the Hezbollah were, were lobbing rockets towards Israel, they hit um, uh, significant sites in Haifa, but that was because those sites were, 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 were big enough for something that didn't have particularly sophisticated guidance technology to hit and cause damage, and they didn't really care. Now, they can, they, they can hit things far more accurately, and, and the Hezbollah probably got coverage of, the, of all of Israel, uh, including uh, the cities in the south, Ashdod, uh, Eskalon, and Demona. Um, uh, and there's no sign that the Iranians will stop supporting Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah, or or the uh, or the Hashd militias uh, in Iraq, because because this that space, uh, Iraq, Syria, and, and Lebanon is now is now the greater um, uh, Iranian um, uh, power projection zone uh, in the Middle East. It's partly defensive; it, it provides strategic strategic depth, um, and it's also uh, Partly aggressive because in the event of a conflict, they can they can use semi-deniable proxies to conduct attacks on their behalf, and I, that's not going to stop. And I think that remains a serious problem uh, for everybody. And I think you know if you look at what's happening in Iraq, every time there's a new prime minister in Iraq, everyone gets very excited and says this is a new start. Well, it never is. It's just more of the same, and it gets worse. So the current Iraqi prime minister, Hamid um, Shia Soudani, um, uh, has done uh, some interesting things, some good things, but. Iraq remains a deeply corrupt state, uh, uh, which the Iranians uh, have sought uh, to use to exploit economically and financially by stealing dollars through the central bank auctions, or indeed through massive cases of fraud. Uh, and uh, although security in Baghdad is much better than it was even uh, even three years ago, it's it's better because the people who are causing most of the of the violence are now in charge. Uh, and doing what they want. So, you know, these things remain a massive problem. And do I think the Iranians are going to pull back from that? No, I don't. This is not included in the deal. I think the Iranian economy is in a terrible state. I mean, inflation is running, I think, around 50% at the moment. Uh, the, price of the, uh, of the, uh, 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 the price of the dollar has, has massively shot up uh, over the last year. Um, uh, and I think, you know, this was... I think the Iranians will have thought this gives us a bit of a, a bit of a breathing space um, uh, to uh, to try and fix something. But and I think that economic issue has been a factor in the, in, in the protests, the demonstrations, the hijab uh, demonstrations uh, in Iran, which continue at a lower level than they were, 
in spite of the massive repression. But you can tell the discontent is, is very widespread um, and, and comes from a variety of different sources. Um, there are, uh, the Iranians have been trying uh, for, again, for the last two, uh, maybe three decades uh, to sponsor groups in the West Bank. They've had a relationship with Hamas, of course, for, for, for many, many years. That became a little uneasy uh, after the Syrian uprising. Uh, when Hamas broke, at least for, the, for temporarily, its relations with the Assad regime, although they've gone back. Um, uh, and, uh, and that continues, and uh, has probably been strengthened recently. What's happening in the West Bank? I mean, you, know, you look at, at, at these groups coming out of Janine and elsewhere, uh, the so-called uh, Alliance Den, the Harin al-Sud uh, groups. And the interesting thing for me, uh, looking from outside, is that they actually don't seem to be affiliated particularly with Hamas or with with Fatah, although both organizations will be trying to influence them, um, uh, which makes them harder, I think, for the IDF to uh, to deal with. Um, but, you know, the, the uptick of violence um, and attacks on Israelis, settlers and others uh, in the West Bank is clearly an opportunity for the Iranians. Um, and we know it, it's, 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 it's relatively straightforward for them to, to get stuff over the Lebanese border um, into, into the West Bank. What the relationship is between that and their sponsorship of Hamas in Gaza, because Hamas, of course, all themselves also want to retain control over the commission of active violence in the West Bank, uh, is, is not clear to me. Um, so it'll be, it'll, it, so I think it is complex. All this is facilitated by the by the moral collapse of the Palestinian Authority. I mean, it, it's not it's not widely respected by Palestinians. It seems to be incapable <coughs> of producing an effective response um, to the new uh, Israeli government, um, and it's widely discredited. So it's an opening. And do, and do I think the Iranians are going to try and exploit that? Oh, they already are. I think they'll try and do more. Um, and I don't think in that, in that space, what I call the Greater Levant, that they're going to pull back at all. Thank you, Sir John. One further Saudi angle. Um, Prince Faisal recently visited both Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. What balance was he was he trying to strike there? <clears throat> well, it was part of this sort of new Saudi foreign policy. They want to have relations with, with, with everybody. They think this is part of a new multipolar multipolar world. And they, you know, they've got a point. Um, uh, if I, uh, the, the, uh, Prince Faisal was in uh, London a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I spoke to him about it. Um, and uh, the, they've had they've developed and sustained a very good relationship with Russia um, uh, on on energy. Um, although Russia isn't a member of OPEC, but they have they have they have, they have been uh, in very close consultation on, uh, uh, on 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 production, export, and prices for the last decade. Um, and the Saudi oil minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, who is a half brother of uh, the other half brother of Mohammed bin Salman, is a highly effective operator, and his relationship with the Russians seems to be very good. So they they so they, they, they have they have shared interests. Uh, Faisal. Uh, Prince Faisal has also said, of course, he said at the Munich Security Conference and he said elsewhere that uh, the current uh, Saudi and wider Arab position on Syria is unsustainable because it didn't work. So you're, you're, you're seeing uh, 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 gradual um, uh, uh, rebuilding of relations with the Assad regime. The Emiratis have been very forward on this as the Jordanians have been forward. And the Saudis are now, are now being very forward. Um, and this talk of a Russian role in, 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 in facilitating a formal Saudi-Syrian uh, um, uh, deal <clears throat> on this. So 
uh, and if it's true that, that Assad is going to offer the, the, the Russians a, a permanent and enhanced military presence at uh, Hemeyman Air Base or, or Tartus, uh, the naval base of Tartus, um, which, of course, from Assad's point of view, would be a good thing because it provides him with another protector to supplement Iran, then the Russians are a permanent presence uh, and a significant uh, shaper of policies in in the Saudi in the Saudi in the Saudi neighborhood. Um, so it's it, it's 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 very pragmatic. And I think you know, if you think back to how the Saudis traditionally ran foreign policy, it's always extremely cautious, never got out ahead of, of, of the slowest ship in the convoy, and always, in spite of um, uh, of irritations and sometimes uh, more serious disputes with the United States, always. Uh, with an eye to Washington. What we're seeing now is something that looks more independent, more dynamic, more strategic, more creative. What it may do is produce a return to a Middle East of, uh, of states which are semi-covertly uh, um, uh, deeply suspicious of each other, um, and in some cases uh, in conflict, but which maintain state-to-state relations in a sort of uneasy state system which is what we had maybe before the invasion of Iraq, because you have to deal with your neighbours however bad they are, which is why everybody dealt with Saddam Hussein. Uh, if we go back to that, then politics will look something more like it did in the, 19, in the 1980s maybe, um, but it will be, the difference will be that Saudi Arabia, I think will, will see itself as a major shaper of this system rather than just a consumer or recipient of external security. Um, you know, it's 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 an interesting question of whether they have the capacity, in terms of, of diplomacy, and uh, and the use of, or threat of physical force, to make all that stick. But I think that's the sort of new area we're looking at. I mean, in a way, it's a return to the past, with a rebooted uh, Saudi. Uh, uh, with, with rebooted Saudi ambition and a certain rebooted capacity uh, to try and to try and manage these relations, but I still, you know, if you look at the American presence, they still got the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. They've got something like a hundred thousand plus uh, 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 troops positioned in Saudi Arabia, uh, in uh, Qatar at Al Jazeera Air Base, in the Emirates. Uh, they've got about 1,500 troops in Iraq. They've got about 500 troops in Syria. So they've got troops in Jordan. Uh, so, you know, physically, they're still there. It's a question of what the Americans want to do with this. So essentially, it's a question of political will. Thank you, Sir John. That's a, that's a fascinating picture of a, a typically uh, complex and delicate regional regional situation. With that in mind, one, one final question. Prime Ministers Netanyahu and Sunak are meeting today. Yeah. What advice would you be giving the British Prime Minister on how the UK can play a constructive role in the region? Well, it'll be interesting to see if they compare notes about how to manage their respective their respective uh, parties through coalitions, uh, because both of them yeah. both of them have um, have have internal uh, political management issues. Um, you know, I think the um, and they'll be talking. There's, there's a lot to talk about economic ties. Have, have strengthened over the last decade. There's a lot of cooperation on, in, in science, uh, technology, and all that sort of stuff, which is which is which is great. Um, and I think you know Israel remains uh, for us as it does for the United States a fundamental um, uh, building block of, of security in the wider Middle East. Um, 
my guess is, you know, internal political instability in Israel doesn't help anybody. Um, you know, I understand why 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 Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has constructed the coalition he has, but it looks to me like uh, like a, a, a destabilizing uh, coalition. Um, uh, even if they manage to push through the current changes to the uh, to the um, uh, to the Supreme Court, um, <clears throat> there is a wider issue about about uh, about Palestinians. Um, the, the 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 idea that for me the idea that the Palestinians are going to disappear or you can get rid of them or you can persuade them to leave seems to be is 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 mad. Uh, so you have to have some sort of um, horizon for the Palestinians. If you and I think this is this is part of the of the issue with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's not, you know the, the Palestinian cause does not have the same valency as it did even twenty years ago uh, in, in in the wider Middle East, certainly among, among political elites, uh, and certainly in the Gulf. Uh, but equally, if you think about how the Saudis see the region, for them, if there was going to be a deal with with Israel, I I think that deal would have to include. A Palestinian chapter. Um, what that is, I mean, which, which means you need some serious political settlement with the Palestinians, whether that's a state, whether it's some sort of other political entity, whether it's something to do with Jordan. But you have to have something, because otherwise, you know, what do the what status do Palestinians in the West Bank have? I mean, Gaza is, is, is a separate issue. I think Gaza is, is is disastrous, but I think it's largely disastrous because of Hamas. Um, which is a, which is a slightly separate issue, but you need to have something um, there uh, for me. I mean, I, you know, Netanyahu will, will say it's it's too early. There's no partner, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it it is worth thinking about that because I think the Saudis will be thinking about it. So, John, you've given our listeners much to ponder on the various impacts of a, of a very significant regional development. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, thank you for joining us once again, and we hope you'll do so again soon when we bring you another Bicom podcast.